Welcome to this episode of Christ in Prophecy. I'm Tim Moore, the Senior Evangelist here at Lamb & Lion Ministries. I'm joined by my co-host Nathan Jones, our Internet Evangelist. Today marks the beginning of an all-new series focusing on Jesus in the Old Testament. Befitting the name of our show, we're going to be highlighting Christ in prophecy. For 19 seasons now, our television program has been proclaiming the soon return of Jesus Christ. We believe that glorious event will take place in the near future with the rapture of the church. In that regard, Jesus is coming soon for those who put their faith in Him. It's an imminent event, meaning that the rapture could happen at any moment. Are you ready? That's right. The focus of this program is Christ in prophecy. But while we wait for what Paul called our blessed hope, we believe we should dive into the Old Testament to learn what the Bible teaches about our soon returning King. So we're going back to the future. I don't think so, Tim. Well, maybe not like that. Prophetic clues pointing to Jesus are sprinkled throughout the Bible in both the New Testament and the Old. In the Old Testament alone, there are 300 general prophecies foretelling Jesus' first coming, all of which came true, by the way, and a whopping 500 general prophecies prophesying about His second coming. So, in order to better understand our great God and Savior, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, we're going to spend this episode laying the foundation, and then in our next episode, We'll travel to the very beginning, starting in Genesis 1, where the triune God testifies that He is our Creator. Tim, when thinking about Jesus in the Old Testament, what are some of the more common references that pop into your head when you think of Jesus? Well, I think the most recognizable ones are things like Jesus, or the Messiah, I should say, as the suffering servant, as outlined in Isaiah chapter 53. You can think about Psalm 110 that refers to uh, the Lord's anointed being a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, obviously that referencing back all the way to Genesis, and then the blood of the Passover lamb during the book of Exodus during the Passover. Those are excellent examples, and it's interesting that each one falls into the category of what's called Christophany. Folks, if you want to know what a Christophany is, it's meaning an appearance or manifestation of Christ. Now, your Isaiah 53 reference of the Messiah as being the suffering servant falls into probably the broadest category that most people think of, and that's called the prophetical. Those are just the outright prophecies right. that prophesy about the Messiah. That's exactly right. And the second category would be the historical, and you can think about actual people who foreshadow the coming Messiah, people like Adam, the first man, people like Noah, who was delivered from the wrath to come, but was a righteous man, a preacher of righteousness. You can think about Moses, who was a deliverer of his people from captivity, King David, uh, the man after God's own heart, Solomon, full of wisdom. And of course, one of my favorites is Joseph, who was rejected by his brethren, sent into a foreign land, into a Gentile land, and yet he delivered his people from starvation, and they found that he ended up being their 
their savior, if you will, in a time of crisis. Excellent. Well, the third category of Christophany is called ceremonial. Now, Jesus is our Passover lamb. In other words, the Passover lamb signifies that Jesus, when he died on the cross, like the blood was put over the doorposts of the Jews in Egypt, Jesus' blood goes over our sins and the angel of death passes over. You'll see other examples of ceremonial Christophanies. Uh, one of my favorite, the brazen serpent oh, during yeah. the Exodus that was lifted up and the people looked at it and they were healed. Likewise, Jesus was lifted up on a cross and he was healed. There's also the Ark of the Covenant. The way the Ark of the Covenant was designed is to be a physical representation of Jesus Christ. The Feast of the Tabernacles, the whole feast is about our Messiah living with us for, uh, and meeting with us, tabernacling with us during the millennial kingdom. And then all the ceremonies involving the temple and the priests for cleansing rituals point to the Messiah, how he would eventually cleanse us of our sins. So many things in the Old Testament do point us to Jesus Christ, which is why it's a folly to say, well, I'm a New Testament Christian, yeah. as if we could dismiss the entire Old Testament, because the entire Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. It holds relevant lessons that impact our lives today. And people often don't realize that Jesus and the apostles cited the Old Testament because it was the only scripture that they had. And again, they were citing it because it points to the coming Messiah time and time again. It is the story of God's plan of salvation. But sadly, again, too many contemporary Christians see the Old Testament as a collection of disjointed stories. And you know, the sad reality, Nathan, is that oftentimes we teach our children about Noah and the ark, David and Goliath, Jonah and the whale, but we do that as standalone stories of faithfulness and triumph. And we have learned, and for example, Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis has a book called Already Gone, where he documents that most young people, too many young people, equate these disconnected stories from the Bible with fairy tales, which always begin once upon a time. Yeah. In other words, they don't see them as part of an overarching narrative or anything that makes any sense in a continual. They just see them as isolated stories. And so Dr. Ham has documented the dramatic falling away of young people from Christian faith and tied their abandonment of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the poor communication the church has sometimes used to communicate God's own testimony of history or His story. Absolutely. I, I love going back, you talked about the story of Jonah and the whale or the big fish. And most people look at that as a children's and they'll decorate their nurseries with pictures of that. But it's actually a sign. Jesus said in Matthew 12, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Isn't that amazing? Jonah being thrown into the big fish and seeming to die for three days and then come back to life was a sign that Jesus gave to the unbelievers at that time period who questioned his Messiahship, said, look for the sign of Jonah. When I'm in the ground three days and come back, you'll know that I am the Messiah. And he demonstrated that he didn't think Jonah was a, a fable or a legend. Not at all. It was a truthful narrative account, a historical account that Jesus referenced is prophetic to himself. You know, that's a great example, Nathan. And casual Christians also fall prey to the idea that maybe Adam was just a mythological uh -huh. figure, you know, perhaps representing some kind of proto-human being that evolved from some kind of pre-human race over eons of time. But that reflects their secular education, not the biblical truth. Jesus also affirmed that Adam was a real person yes. created by God and partnered with a real Eve. And so, the Bible is true if we will just believe and take God at His Word. Mm -hmm. You uh, taught a, that in Awana, didn't you? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I think that some people try to separate 
the, the historical truth of, of Scripture from what they've learned. And I learned that in a powerful way. Okay. Years ago, my wife asked me to teach through the Old Testament to a group of Awana children. They were studying Scripture. This was third and fourth graders. And she said, can you put all the stories of the Old Testament together in sort of the overarching narrative? And I was delighted to do so. So we started as we're going to in the beginning. And after just a few weeks, we had worked our way up through Noah and the flood. And I told how the Lord led pairs of animals to come to be preserved on the ark and that they were saved through the flood and, of course, repopulated the earth. And as I mentioned, there would have been dinosaurs and all sorts of other creatures that we don't always see today. They're extinct, but they were certainly present in that day and age. I had a couple of senior saints of the church who pulled me aside afterward. They were in the room and they said, do you mean to tell me you believe dinosaurs lived at the same time as human beings? And I said, of course. And they said, well, where did you get that idea? And I said, well, Scripture says that the Lord created the land animals on day six, at the same day He created man. And there are references in the book of Job to behemoth which sounds just like a land dinosaur, and to Leviathan, which sounds like a sea creature that we would call a dinosaur today. And those were in existence during the time of Job. So I said, yes, I believe the Bible. And they said, well, we thought dinosaurs lived billions of years ago, long before mankind. And I asked, where did you get that idea? And they said, well, we learned it in school. And I think this demonstrates that oftentimes people do not connect their biblical knowledge which what they've, with what they've accepted as the world's account of history, even for creation itself. But really, God's eyewitness testimony is valid and true and should be our only source. Right, because often people separate their scientific beliefs from their religious beliefs as if they're two separate camps. But then you go to some of the greatest scientists in past history and some of today, and you realize that the order of nature shows that there had to be an architect. Just like the Bible is perfectly sculpted with these yes. Christophanies that point to Jesus that we're talking about, great scientists of history have noticed that there's an order in creation. Like, for instance, Galileo, who developed orbital mechanics, and Isaac Newton, who spent more time studying the Bible than on his scientific experiments, but he developed the laws of gravity and motion. He invented calculus, oh my goodness, and built the first reflecting telescope. Robert Boyle, who developed laws of gas pressures, there was Michael Faraday who began to understand a link between light and magnetism. Gregor Mendel who pioneered the science of genetics. Uh, one of my favorite, George Washington Carver who improved agriculture throughout the United States and the world based on his experiments with, of all things, peanuts. And Francis Collins who directed the National Human Genome Research Institute for 15 years. You know, the, the beautiful thing is all of those scientists that you cite and really all of the early scientists were avid Christians who believed that a God of order had established a world, a creation with order that could be understood. And that's why they investigated and researched and discovered so many truths about our natural world. But one of the scientists you list is a personal hero of me, and that's George Washington Carver, because he was born into slavery but found true freedom in Jesus Christ. He boldly shared his faith throughout his life at every opportunity. And one time in the 1930s, he was invited to testify before the House Ways and Means Committee. He was given 10 minutes to offer testimony. And at the end of his time, the chairman of that committee said, well, this is so fascinating. You take as much time as you want. An hour and 45 minutes later, Dr. Carver finished. And the chairman said, my goodness, where did you learn all these things about the peanut? And George Washington Carver's response, you can go back and read the testimony of that committee. He said, I learned it from an old book. And the chairman asked, what book? And Carver replied, the Bible. The chairman asked, does the Bible really talk about peanuts? 
And Dr. Carver replied, no, sir, but it tells about a God who made the peanut. I asked him to show me what to do with the peanut, and he did. You know, Nathan, George Washington Carver took the Lord at his word literally. And that determination to take God at his word from beginning to end is why we're launching this series. Well, Tim, as we go through this series about Jesus in the Old Testament, how should we approach it? What, how are we going to do that? Are we going to do it in order of the 39 Old Testament books as we see in Western style or the Jewish Bible? Or are you going to break it up into literary segments? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to follow the outline of Scripture as you have it in your Bible, the order of the books that the editors have put together. And they are arranged in the original Pentateuch and then with the wisdom books, the historical books, the prophetic books. So we're going to follow the order of the Bible. But as we do so, we're also going to provide you with a timeline relatively demonstrating where in human history these various books, events, and individuals would have fallen in our own human timeline. Because the reality is that the editors of our Bibles did not always insert the books in chronological order. When I was first studying chronology in the Bible, it just blew my mind to learn that Job, which is found in the wisdom books, it, actually he was a contemporary living at the same time as Abraham and Isaac. So you should actually find Job in Genesis but he's there much later in the Bible. So I always found it interesting how us Westerners, especially Americans, tend to look at things chronologically from beginning to end. But if you go to other parts of the world, the more the Eastern mindset, they tend to look at things more event-oriented. And so their Bibles are laid out differently than ours. Oftentimes. And you know, Nathan, in order to give a picture of where particular books or biblical accounts fall in human history, we will reference this timeline from time to time. Our media and graphics team has done their usual fantastic job in creating this visual aid to our dialogue. We have to give a shout out of thanks to Drs. Ed Heinsen and Tommy Ice for their book, Biblical Timelines, and to their Christian publisher, Harvest House, which gave us permission to use their wonderful graphics. But even as we share approximate dates to help you understand where the Old Testament books, incidents, and individuals fell, we want you to understand that we are not emphatic about the exact dates. We just want to give you a relative understanding of where those events occurred in human history. And Tim, you've got planned out some very interesting uh, tools that accompany this study to help people in it. Can you tell us about it? We certainly do. We're going to be providing on our website a template that helps you record a key verse each week. So for instance, next week we'll be in Genesis 1 and 2. We'd like you to read in advance Genesis 1 and 2 and let the Holy Spirit lay on your heart a key verse that captures that entire segment of Scripture. You record that on this page and as you go down through the weeks, all those key verses when you string them together will act like a, an ark pointing to Jesus Christ. Nathan and I will also be picking out key verses, so we'll be following along with you and sharing those with you on a week-to-week -week basis. We also want to share another resource that's available from Lamb and Lion Ministries. Although we're not following Dr. Reagan's Christ in Prophecy book exactly, it provides a deep dive to help you understand where Jesus falls in Bible prophecy. So for those of you who want to dive even deeper to help build a foundation for what we're going to be exploring through the Old Testament, we'd recommend this following book. The Christ in Prophecy Study Guide is one of the most popular and valuable publications that Dr. David Reagan has ever written, and it's filled with information and tools to help you understand Bible prophecy. This guide is used worldwide and is a product of over seven years of intensive study by Dr. Reagan. Using this guide will build your faith and strengthen your interest in Bible prophecy as you discover the 109 prophecies that foretold very specific facts about the birth and life of Jesus Christ. As you discover how faithful God is in keeping His promises in the past, 
It will help you look forward with excitement to the fulfillment of over 500 prophecies about Jesus' second coming. Clear, logical charts and illustrations like this one about the Jewish feasts make learning the facts and meaning of the scriptures a joy. The Christ and Prophecy Study Guide also contains two tools that you will use over and over. The Topical Index allows you to find important scriptures related to every significant theme found in scripture, and the Scripture Index will direct you to every page of the guide that pertains to the scripture that you are studying. You can get your copy of the Christ and Prophecy Study Guide for a gift of $20 or more, and that includes the cost of shipping. Just call the number you see on the screen Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Central Time, or order online at landlion.com. talked about an overarching narrative or a meta-narrative. What exactly is that? Well, it's kind of like if you went to the forest and you started examining individual trees and never realized that there's an entire forest I'm standing in. Sometimes we look at individual stories, God's stories in Scripture, without realizing that they all blend together into an overarching or overarching narrative that is His story pointing to Jesus Christ. And so this is true in so many different ways. Of course, each of us has our own story, and the Lord weaves and blends our story together with His story and provides glory to Himself, obviously. That's, that's beautiful. Well, maybe I think people would like to know, what is your story? How did you encounter the Jesus of the Old and the New Testament? What's your testimony? All right. Well, my own personal testimony is I grew up in a Christian home. I fortunately had Christian parents who raised me in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And at an early age, I understood who Jesus Christ was. I went to Sunday school and children's church and all those other things. But there was a dramatic moment in my life. I was very young. I was about eight years old when I came to understand fully that I was a sinner. I was hopeless in my own sins. I couldn't obey my parents adequately. I certainly couldn't obey the Lord adequately. And it really, it crushed my, my sense of hope in myself. But I realized that Jesus Christ offered me salvation from my sins. And I embraced Him as my Savior. I gave my life to Him. And, and my life was changed from that moment forward. Now, I have to tell you, that didn't mean that I became perfect from that moment forward. I have failed in many ways. I disappoint the Lord as I've sit on this program. If I haven't disappointed you, it's because you haven't known me long enough, but I have purpose to serve Jesus Christ. Over the course of time, my parents will tell you, I aspired to be a preacher, a pilot, or a politician, and the Lord allowed me to pursue the desires that He had placed in my heart with the purpose of serving Him wherever I was. So I was in the military for a number of years as a pilot, Eventually, he led me into a political role, and then finally, he had prepared me through all those different avenues into the role he would call me in this ministry. And, and yet, I've been serving Jesus Christ for all my life since giving my life to him, and yet now I do so more fully in this role. How about you, Nathan? What's your story? Well, my testimony is uh, growing up, I was kind of concerned about when people would ask me, give your testimony because, you know, I didn't come from a background of drinking or drugs or running around with street gangs or stuff like that. So I thought, oh, that's going to be a boring testimony. But as I got older, I realized that what a blessing to be raised in a Christian family. Both my parents, uh, my siblings, all saved, know the Lord. My father uh, sold books and Bibles for between the publishers, and my grandfather got saved out of the big band era. He's the first one, my mother's side, all the way back to the pilgrims. But I remember having a godly mother 
who sat down with me and my sister, and she shared the gospel. I must have been like seven or eight. And I remember accepting the Lord, giving the prayer, and having this elated joy. I was laughing. I'm like, Mom, why am I kind of laughing? Because even at a young age, you could feel that the Holy Spirit move in you. Well, uh, I was before the age of accountability, so by the time I turned to be 12 years old, uh, our, I was in Brigade Boys at the time, oh. and they took us to this horrible movie, Babies Burning in Hell. They were trying to terrorize us to, to accept the gospel. Uh, I ran up front. I accepted Jesus again, but I was sure of it then. By 16, I realized I needed to get baptized. I, had, uh, I didn't believe that baptism is necessary for salvation, but the Lord set it as an example so that we should follow. So I went to the Tennessee River, and I got baptized. Years later, I'd be baptized in the Jordan River. Uh, but So I was going to go to college, and I went to Penn State University. I was going to be an astronaut. I was going to go through the sciences track. I was taking advanced calculuses and physics, and I just couldn't hack it. And so I took a year off and worked at a restaurant, and just I was so lost. I'm like, Lord, what do you want of me? Well, we had a director of a Christian camp in Alaska called Echo Ranch Bible Camp. He came to our church and said, hey, I need counselors to come out to Alaska and share the gospel with children. I was like, I need a change of pace. So I, I went with him, uh, like met the calling, went up as a summer missionary, and it, it just totally changed my life. I realized that the Lord had called me to full-time ministry. Uh, some of the fellow counselors there were also at students at Philadelphia Biblical University. So I was like, okay, that's where I was going to go. And the Lord set that path right because that's where I met my wonderful wife, Heather. And uh, I knew I was going to get into ministry. And so for two years after graduation, I went and worked for a mission board. I, we were going to become missionaries to Brazil and work with street children. And the director of the ministry was like, well, I think you need to get some real-world experience first. Well, I quickly learned that a Bible degree does not get you a real-world job. So at the time, the Internet was burgeoning and starting. So I went to tech school, and I started learning about uh, the Internet and how it was growing. I got a job in ISP, and I'm building all these big websites up and down the East Coast. But I'm like, Lord, I'm, I'm so far from ministry. You sent me to Bible school. You put this calling on my life. Well, I, through the internet, I found a mega church in Kentucky that was looking for someone to take their website and expand it and all. And so I took that position and uh, we moved to Kentucky. And for six years, I continued to develop their internet outreach. They never quite grabbed onto the idea that this could reach beyond their four walls until Dr. David Reagan showed up to speak at one of our events. And through a mutual friend, he said, I want you to come down to Texas and turn my website into a web ministry. And Tim, I can look back now and see, oh, that's why the Lord did that. And these are the skills he wanted me to have. So instead of just a small town in Brazil, now I have an entire internet of 4.5 billion people that we can reach out to. And it's funny that you can look back, like you said, that meta-narrative, that tapestry, and see how that thread of my life has taken me to where I am today. And how the Lord has woven you into His story. And someday you'll understand, and we all will, how our lives have impacted others. I will say this. You may have a much more dramatic testimony, but the other reality is you don't have to be in full-time ministry. Some of the most dramatic impact on lives I've ever known came from Christians living their lives wherever the Lord had placed them, in whatever walk of life, whatever circle of friends, and yet they testified to the presence of Jesus Christ in their lives. And they were able to connect with people. The Holy Spirit was able to prick hearts and impact lives for all of eternity. So our appeal to you is share your own testimony, your story, and allow God to weave that into His tapestry, His story for His glory. What else would you have to say, Nathan? 
Definitely. Uh, work on your testimony because there's a, a saying I put in, in our, uh, when we graduated from college, at a reporter had said it 100 years ago, but it stuck with me, is that sometimes the only Bible people read is your life. So share your life with other people and what God's doing with you and how he's given you a meta-narrative as part of his overall picture of redemption for the world, and you can lead people to Jesus Christ. Amen. King David testified, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Foretelling the modern day, the Apostle Paul wrote, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. As Solomon wisely observed, there is nothing new under the sun. Clearly, fools have been dismissing the existence of God throughout human history. Still, it is particularly sad when a society abandons God in spite of His manifest blessings, in spite of their claim to trust in Him, and in spite of calling on Him to continue shedding His grace on us. But that is the trajectory of faith we've documented for many years here at Lamb & Lion Ministries. America continues to wander away from our Great Shepherd. When asked about their religious affiliation, more and more young people are declaring themselves to be nuns, meaning that they don't even consider themselves casual Christians. Sometimes the drift is insidious. At other times, the rush toward secularism is jarring. That occurred recently when Harvard University announced that the 40 chaplains on its staff have elected an atheist to be the new head chaplain. Greg Epstein is an avowed atheist who has been the humanist chaplain at Harvard since 2005. He also serves as a chaplain at MIT. According to the New York Times, his focus is teaching students about the progressive movement that centers people's relationships with one another instead of with God. Do not miss his commitment to the progressive movement. You're already familiar with outspoken progressives like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Cori Bush, and Bernie Sanders. This ultra-left fringe of American politics is committed to unlimited abortion on demand, socialist policies at every level of government, the sexual revolution in general, and LGBTQ advocacy in particular, and condemnation of Israel. The inspiration for such an unholy mantra is a vehement rejection of God. They consider the God of the Bible to be an oppressive, patriarchal, white-privileging relic of the past that must be rejected and opposed. That is why humanism, or atheism, is at the core of the progressive movement. But both science and geopolitics has demonstrated that nature abhors a vacuum. Eventually, that vacuum is filled with something. That is why even atheism is not a genuine claim to no God and no religion. It is simply a willful rejection of the true and living God. Other gods, other beliefs, rush in to fill that void. As I've said many times, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Sadly, because Harvard is so influential in, in the educational sphere, its drift from its Christian roots into a full-fledged progressive oblivion will impact other institutions. You can expect that other Ivy League schools will soon follow suit. For which of them wants to be affiliated with something so passe as Christianity? And then other public colleges and universities will head down the same path. But in truth, they already are. There is another passage that is appropriate given our drift, this society's drift, away from the true and living God. Solomon also wrote, 
A wise person's heart directs him toward the right, but the foolish person's heart directs him toward the left. At Lamb and Lion Ministries, we are not espousing a particular political party, but we can clearly discern that the left in America has become hostile toward Christianity and is in full rebellion against God, against His Word, and against His anointed. They are eagerly sowing the wind in our nation. Soon, we will all reap the whirlwind. This is Tim Moore for Lamb and Lion Ministries saying, Godspeed. Tim.